I'm here with Michael Bolden from the 10th Amendment Center. Um, what they are, their whole mission is incredibly relevant right now. Um, always has been, but but more so now. So I'm just going to let you, uh, Michael, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, and I'll let you start off by just, could you introduce yourself and the 10th Amendment Center and just for people who may never have heard of it, um, give a short explanation of, of what you guys do. Okay, so as far as me, hi, that's my introduction. <laughs> and I founded this organization back in 2006. I just wanted to start a blog to just talk about how the Bush administration, like everyone prior to that in my lifetime, basically everything they did was either a lie, it was unconstitutional, or if they actually did what they promised, it would cost like 10 times as much as what they said it would in, at the outset. So they were just kind of ripping us off. They were going to wars, killing people, violating our rights to privacy, our right to keep and bear arms, and on and on. And it doesn't change now. So I started this organization, just this idea that maybe a few people would listen. And here we are, however many, I went to government school, so my math skills are really bad. What is that, like 14 years now? Holy crap. Like, a lot of people are listening these days, not enough, but we're going to continue doing it. And we focus on the 10th Amendment to the Constitution. This is not a state's rights statement. This is a reaffirmation of what the founders would have called popular sovereignty. We all know the old phrase, like the John Lennon protest phrase of power to the people. But in essence, to me, that actually, and I love Lennon, there's some great documentaries about him. But to me, it actually is backwards because it's almost like saying, hey, we're the people here. Give us the power that we want. It's like a begging approach. But really, if you take the founder's approach of popular sovereignty, power flows from the sovereign, which is the final authority. And it really should be power from the people. And so we try to work to educate people that that's kind of the source. And when enough people actually say no to a government so-called law, and then maybe sometimes if you can get states or localities to back those people up in some way, it makes it difficult to impossible for the federal government to force their laws, mandates, regulations, whatever, down our throats. That's the short intro. Okay, awesome. Um, could you, do you have any examples of, of this in practice in recent years? Are there any times weed? when... Weed. Weed. Yeah. Weed is the greatest example <laughs> of this happening in practice, maybe in history. Wow. If you think about cannabis, this is a plant that the federal government, first of all, it's a plant. And the federal government has the arrogance to say that a naturally occurring plant is illegal. It's illegal to grow. It's illegal to own. It's illegal to consume. It's illegal to sell. It's illegal to grow and consume in your own home, even if you never buy or sell it as supposedly interstate commerce, commerce that crosses state lines. Mm -hmm. So the absurdity and the arrogance, this is just utter hubris on their point part, that they say that you can't do this. But yet, here we are today, 33 states and growing, my puns are intended, uh, 33 states and growing are now to some degree or another, and more so every single year, defying Washington, D.C. so-called prohibition. And rather than waiting on the federal government to repeal the law that they put in to oppress us, the people are doing it differently. Now, mind you, the states aren't even good on this. And they're actually making a huge difference because when, I mean, weed was illegal everywhere, even before, I mean, people were using it even before 1996 when the Compassionate Use Act 
Prop 215 was passed by a popular vote here in California in the in 96 and then first implemented in 97. So people were doing this already, buying, selling, growing, consuming in a gray or a black market. Maybe we can just call it the free market before even uh, the California government changed its position to some degree after a vote of the people. So this was already happening. And then the state got on board and then another state got on board and more people kept doing this. And I think it's only a matter of time before the federal government actually says, well, now we're legalizing or we're going to decriminalize on a national level. We're hearing more and more calls for that. And I think they do that just to save face because they don't want to come out and say, well, you know what? So many people have defied us and mm-hmm. so many states have defied us. And this is your blueprint and how to do things on everything else, whether it's gun or healthcare freedom or, or whatever, because that is a very powerful tool. The federal government does not have the manpower or resources to enforce all these so-called laws. So tell me about this blueprint. Here we are now in this unprecedented power grab. Um, you know, I mean, we're, we're in California. Our, our state has has large, largely been shut down, even though um, already, you know, people are going to the beach and opening businesses, and that's great. What's to, to really fight this, to fight the lockdown, to fight the, the increasing surveillance state that's being promised, all that stuff, what is the blueprint? Well, it's really... It's very different when you're talking about state level versus federal level. Being the 10th Amendment Center, we focus primarily on how to deal with the feds. And it actually is much easier, even though if you think about it, the federal government, this is the largest military empire in the history of the world. They have tons of guns. They have tons of power. They have tons of ways to manipulate things and force things down people's throats, or so we think. But because their resources are stretched so thin, it actually becomes logistically simple to implement what James Madison, the so-called father of the Constitution, told us to do back in Federalist 46. This was a paper arguing for ratification in 1788 in support of the Constitution, primarily for a New York audience. And he told us that when the feds do stuff that either you see as unconstitutional or even if you think it's constitutional, but you think it's really bad policy, there are four steps that you're supposed to take. And they are, none of them involved voting bums out, going to mm-hmm. federal courts in the hope that the federal court will overturn the federal power. None of it involved that. It all involves state, local, and individual action in defiance of the federal act in question. So we can implement that. And this was at a time when the federal government was expected to be very small. They weren't doing very much at that point. Today, we know, and even the National Governors Association put out a statement a few years ago on one of these so-called fake uh, government shutdowns. They were so concerned about even a partial shutdown that they put out a statement that said, states are partners with the federal government on most federal programs. I think everyone recognizes that partnerships don't work very well when half the team quits. So a mere action of opting out of federal regulations, federal requirements, federal mandates, federal prohibitions, legalizing what the feds prohibit, whether it's a short-barreled shotgun or a plant, it can have a profound impact. And I mentioned a short-barreled shotgun I think that kind of gets to the point that the ATF, for example, one of these unconstitutional federal agencies, they only have 5,100 or so employees for the entire country, about a third of them in our, are in administration. So they've got about 3,500 employees. And that manpower, that resource that they have, 
that enables them to close about eight to 10,000 cases per year on federal gun control laws. Well, what happens if there are 13 million undocumented short-barreled shotguns in violation of the National Firearms Act of 1934, which shouldn't exist? They don't have the manpower to do Mm -hmm. anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the weed story is such a powerful blueprint because we see it. It's not just me saying, oh, this Madison dude said to do such and such. It's not me just pointing out philosophically some idea. We see it actually playing out before our very eyes in bigger ways than has ever happened in history. And I think we just need to apply that same approach on everything else. But I skipped your actual question. It's totally (laughs) different dealing with the states because- it's each state has their own state constitution. Some of them are very broad. Some of them tend to be a little bit more restrictive. And the last thing, to be honest with you, that I want, and I know a lot of people are actually calling for it, the last thing I want is to ask Al Capone to come to my home and protect me from the buddy from the bully mm-hmm. down the street that Al Capone has hired and has been uh, funding to bully me around for the last few decades of my life. And that, in essence, is what happens when people demand that the largest government, the largest empire in the history of the world, by far, protect them from mm-hmm. their petty dictator governor like Gavin Newsom or something, who's yeah. been using federal funds and federal powers for so many years anyway. So right. it creates a very difficult situation. I think that ends up requiring some level of organized mass resistance. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, I, I haven't done the numbers on California, but it's it, it seems to me it's the same issue. And everyone's saying this as they're hurling themselves onto the beaches. You know, they can't arrest all of us. So it seems like it is, you know, California could be its own nation anyway, size wise. Um, Newsom even called it a nation state a few right, times recently, right. which, you know, I mean, he's a monster just like every other politician. These are all bad people. And once in a while, you know what, if they're being pushed if a bad guy's being pushed to do the right thing or say the right thing, we'll take it. I mean, of sure. course, in an sure. ideal world, it wouldn't be him <laughs> doing it. Yeah. Do you ever see that happening in California, though? I mean, no, that's... or anywhere, really. None of these all a lot yeah. of people, on, you know, when when I travel or I talk to groups in other states are like, oh, California. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. your state is a piece of garbage, too. When it comes to liberty, <laughs> they're all bad. Yeah. Well, one encouraging thing, though, even in California, is we've seen some local sheriffs and counties, or I guess that is the sheriff making that decision, um, decide to go against Newsom. And um, that, to me, that's, that's encouraging. Should people be focusing their efforts on Really local counties, cities, is, is that a good strategy? Yeah, I don't have a lot of logistic advice specifically mm-hmm. on dealing with states, but I think if I'm talking about the idea of individual liberty and the same thing we apply towards federal programs, federal surveillance and things like that, and mind you, most of the state programs that they run are funded by the feds, and I think we could right. talk about that in just a moment, especially militarized police. Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking about what's the best approach. We want to gain individual liberty or we want to support or advance individual liberty. Then making the decisions that are most difficult, the most divisive issues, closest to the individual as possible. The goal would really be to have individuals make choices about their own lives, provided they're not aggressing against others. But if the closest we can get is maybe a neighborhood council or a county or a small community, then that is far better than having a far-off bureaucrat that tries to fit in a one-size-fits-all solution. Here in California, we see kind of this type of thing actually playing out. You know, you mentioned some of these sheriffs, and this is, even though California isn't a federalism or a Tenth Amendment type of structure, 
it just makes logical sense. What happens here, I live in the middle of downtown Los Angeles, which is a totally different environment. No matter what your opinion is, what anyone's opinion is on the pandemic, Los Angeles is a different environment than some sparsely populated northeastern county in Northern California that maybe, and I forget the name of the county, that has had no registered deaths from the the virus at all. Whether you think the numbers are right or wrong, there's none. So, of course, having the same solution for Los Angeles is wrong for that area. That's like the same thing as what's right for California isn't necessarily right for South Carolina and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about the the federal funding issue because it seems like that's kind of how they have the states in a death grip. It's like, well, yeah, you can defy us, but then we're going to we're going to stop the slush coming. You're not going to be able to fund your highways or whatever, or your militarized police. What's what's a good approach to deal with that? Again, it just gets down to opting out. For example, militarized police is a really big one. If we if we think about how the state and local tyrants are acting, who enforces that but the cops? And I think more and more people are starting to recognize, unfortunately, for many years, the people that opposed a militarized police state, which is funded by primarily three federal programs. This whole thing wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Department of Defense 1033 program, the Department of Homeland Security grant program, or the Department of Justice Edward Byrne JAG grant program. So the money and material gets handed down to the locals. And then in response, the feds are actually looking for the locals to focus on federal priorities. Mm -hmm. We saw this going back to alcohol prohibition, where there's a study done on some counties going back to South Carolina. Those counties that actually focused on enforcing the federal Volstead Act, not everybody did. There were a lot of places Mm -hmm. that actually refused to participate. The ones that focused on the federal enforcement saw 30 to 60 percent increase in homicides and compared to the ones that focused on local issues. So the more that that's a small it's I would not say that that's a great scientific study, but it's an anecdotal example of what I've tried to say all along. The more money, hardware and support and partnerships and joint task forces that that local government participates in with the federal government, the more they act like a national force and then they stop focusing on local issues that are important. So we have to follow the money and recognize that the federal government has been driving this for decades. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the heavy militarized police uh, programs really started in the 80s and have ramped up. We also have civil asset forfeiture that drives Mm -hmm. this type of thing. And then they also get all kinds of crazy surveillance tools. But it starts Mm -hmm. from the top. It's a centralized situation, and they really just need to opt out. And I think Immigration sanctuary cities provide a great example of this. And I know in the libertarian world, there's a lot of conflict about whether people love or hate these things. And I don't care whether people love or hate anything as long as they can learn from it. We know the feds have been threatening and pushing and suing to try to take money away from the localities, 300 some around the country, maybe more that are doing this, that are refusing to participate in the enforcement of federal immigration law. But they're doing it anyway. So at some mm-hmm. point, even with the money coming in, there has to be enough public pressure to say, we don't want you to do this. And really, when you get down to this, it's all about human action and people will allow the government that they're okay with. So when you talk about action, are, are you talking about voting in people who huh. will support these policies or are you no. talking about you're talking about something else aren't you i'm not talking about i've never voted 
So, so I mean, I tried once for Ron Paul. Yeah, but I, I, got a, I got a letter back months later from the California Secretary of State that said I wasn't registered, even though I <laughs> sent that thing in with a tracking number. I know we all had some conspiracies back then. This was this was the 08 campaign. And wow. I think we all had some conspiracies like they're scrubbing oh, yeah. the voter rolls. I mean, I'm one. I mean, maybe there were 10 others. I don't know. I don't really believe that the state of California or any state is liberty loving enough to have elected someone like Ron. Uh, but certainly I know when I had a tracking number registered there and, <laughs> and it was delivered well in advance of the registration deadline. And when I went to vote in the primary, they said I wasn't on the roll. Wow. I filled a provisional ballot. And then later I was told it didn't count. But anyways, yeah, no, I heard that from, from a bunch of people. That's, oh, you did. Okay. So yeah, a short yeah. version I mean, technically, by a technicality, I've never voted. So I just don't see it as a strategy. I would vote. I'm not like a principled non-voter. It's mm-hmm. just that I need to have an opportunity to do something other than vote for more government. And yeah. when I'm being given a choice of uh, death by stabbing or death by a, a gut shot by a gun, I don't want either, to be honest with you. So it's going to take me some motivation to do that. And I actually think there's far more effective things to do. And again, it really gets down to resistance. James Madison himself in that paper, Federalist 46, specifically said one of the four things that need to be done is, quote, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. His words, not mine, Mm. just flat out refuse to cooperate. And that's what we see happening on weed. We see it happening on immigration sanctuary cities. We're starting to see a little bit of on the right to keep and bear arms. We're Mm -hmm. certainly seeing it on civil asset forfeiture. We're eight to 10 states led by uh, New Mexico, Nebraska, and even partially here in California have opted out of the federal asset forfeiture program called equitable sharing. Opt out. And then the the program barely exists. I mean, if you don't participate, they can't, they don't have the goons, enough goons to send in to force that down our throats. Right. But when you're talking about opting out, that, that in order to get a locality to opt out, that involves some kind of voting, right? Uh, uh, well, um, no. Initiative I mean, or how? No, let's the- go back to weed. Before yeah. 1996, before that hit on the ballot, you couldn't tell me that no one was growing, buying, yeah. selling, and consuming marijuana. Certainly, it becomes much easier when the locality, when the state, when a county, when a city actually changes their own local laws to match what the people are doing anyways. Mm-hmm. But I think we could go back in history and look at things like child labor laws. Those things were only passed after uh, you know people actually really stopped in general, as a mm-hmm. as a general rule, hiring kids. So I think government is kind of a lagging indicator. It really yeah. starts with human action, but it makes it much easier if you can get the state to pass a law that says the local cops aren't going to break your head in for owning a plant as often as they used to. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, um, it's just what it is. <laughs> What what do you think about the the hairdresser case? I mean, it sounds like the um, the hairdresser in Dallas sounds like a perfect example of what you're talking about. She just, you know, she refused to close down. Um, they they act. I don't know if she actually set foot in jail, but they, you know, she was sentenced to a seven day jail term. I think she went to prison, um, and that's basically what Elon she, Musk said he was going to do. He's yeah, like, look, we're yeah. going to open this up. And what I think is interesting. Let's say. Let's say listeners are taking the position that the pandemic is as dangerous as we're being told, right? Well, at some point, businesses are going to have to reopen. 
And they're going to have to reopen in that scenario in a way that makes it as safe as possible for people working, for customers, and the like. And in most situations, even the government rules, when I'm seeing like here in LA, for example, uh, last week they reopened some retail stores only for curbside pickup. And Mm -hmm. the only guidance they gave was you could do curbside pickup, people got to social distance and wear a mask. Very short. What is that, like three sentences? Mm -hmm. Well, Tesla put out a 38 page document going over for their whatever 10,000 employees going over safety protocols. I mean, obviously, (laughs) someone is taking safety much more seriously than what the so-called health officials are doing to, you know, maybe the health officials are right on the danger. But even with that in mind, Musk's company is saying 38 pages. This is what we're doing. And then they're still being told that isn't right. They're obviously Well, he's actually accountable if if somebody if somebody decides to sue him. There's there's a way of holding him accountable, unlike... I think he cares, though. I mean, obviously, the dude wants to make money, but if you're approaching it like this, and from my understanding, the reports that I read, the the reporters went there from the LA Times or whatever. They said, this is a parking lot up in Fremont at that factory (laughs) that holds that it's a 10,000 employee location. And they said the the parking lot was almost entirely full on the first day. That means most people voluntarily read that document in my impression and said, you know what, this dude is making it so I feel safe enough to go in and earn a paycheck and I'm going to do it. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that kind of gets back to the point I've been always been making, which is whatever the risk is and everyone's going to perceive it differently in a free society, people choose their own risks. People don't, you you don't have a one size fits all thing imposed on. um, Like I perceive my risk here in downtown Los Angeles to be relatively high, to be honest with you. I just do, but Mm. as far as contracting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got some, some like lung issues from being an ex smoker. Mm. So I'm just being Mm -hmm. super careful myself, but that doesn't mean I would force my way of approaching things on and even my neighbor across the hall. It's just how I'm going to choose to live my life and I'm going to be responsible for me. Uh, Now, of course, people are going to say, but what about everybody else? And it's like, then you get into the whole idea that you have to have one central person lording over everyone's decision. And we know how that uh, ends up all through history. Yeah, well, you'd think we did, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what do you think? What's, what's your sense about your fellow Californians? I've actually been really impressed with, what I'm, with some of what I'm seeing. I love California. <laughs> so, just in general, <laughs> I like my tyranny warm. So, <laughs> so it's going to be comfortable. I can get whatever food I want delivered at three in the morning, even though I'm never awake. I just want to know that the option is there. Uh, so I just love I mean, that they're, that they're, they're, they're going down to the beaches and they're like, they're refusing to, to stay home. And they're, some of the businesses are opening up and it's, it's much more of a rebellious attitude than I would have expected from my frankly, um, well, I'm not going to use that, but that's, <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, but think they're about it. As bad as Let's I think about it. And I believe, uh, we have a mutual friend, your friends with Anthony Gregory as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Anthony told me this story years ago living, uh, you know, in Berkeley. He's like, you know, it's it's pretty crazy. Sometimes you see the the hard left, the communist left in a place like Berkeley, you could have a conversation with someone and say like, yeah, I love the second amendment, right? You're thinking like, whoa, what, what do you mean? And the response, the follow-up will be, well, the workers 
They got to be armed. So maybe there's a different motivation a lot of times for the kind of defiant attitude. But I think California in general being so far away from Rome or Washington Mm. really has had a defiant spirit when it comes to things like weed or cap and trade or the sanctuary cities. It just doesn't always line up with kind of a libertarian or if you go further, a more conservative approach. So it just depends on the issue. So what some people would see as a defiant attitude on guns in Arizona, which I really don't think it is, but uh, some might see it like that. It's just on different issues here in California. Yeah, I also get the feeling that, I mean, just from my experience now of starting to hang out with a few uh, gun people, um, there's there there are more of them here than, than you'd think. There's a lot of gun rights yeah, activists and a yeah. lot of, oh yeah. And there are a lot of them on the left. And if you think about it, you can go back to the 1960s, some of the, the strongest gun activists, and I don't mean gun activists, a talking about voting people in or calling for lawsuits or begging for permission slips. We're talking about the Black Panther Party Mm -hmm. who was willing to open carry high-powered rifles in the state capitol. They talk about these days in Michigan, you know, it's like a bunch of redneck, white, red, uh, right-wingers, white dudes that are storming the Yeah, this is a Malcolm X approach. You only get freedom when you take it. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, quickly, because we've got to wrap up pretty, pretty soon. Cool. But this wanted, is awesome stuff. I love talking. Yeah, no, it, this, it is awesome stuff. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, surveillance state issues. Uh, oh, man. Plans for contact tracing, um, mandatory testing in order to go back to work. Any thoughts on, you know, how, how to approach that kind of thing? Well, they're already doing things like geofencing. Uh, so, example, they tried, for example, in Utah, everybody who crossed the state border would get a te- They tell you not to text while driving, but then the mm-hmm. government, as soon as you cross the border into the state, sends you an emergency alert text <laughs> telling you to, to pull over the next chance and report where you're coming from. So, I mean, the absurdity of that is one thing. Yeah. Every time there's a crisis, real or perceived, government will always try to expand its power. James Madison talked about that as well. He said, perhaps it's a universal truth, I'm paraphrasing off the top of my head, that the loss of liberty will be charged against provisions, against danger, real or pretended, he said, Mm -hmm. from abroad. So he thought back then, and as a great student of history, he recognized that government would always try to expand its power. I recognize that the first place they tend to expand their power is the surveillance state, and we saw it through the uh, 9-11 through 9-11 with yeah. the Patriot Act. They're trying to expand that. Mitch McConnell in the, the FISA reauthorization that's up this week, he's trying to sneak in the ability for the FBI to totally monitor everyone's social media and uh, internet browsing history, adding just one piece of text to a must-pass pass authorization, the contact tracing, there's the trace bill that's uh, just been introduced a few days ago in Congress to pass out $100 billion to implement this on the state level. Again, the state's acting like tyrants. People think, oh, well, California is trying to track and trace everybody, but they're getting the money from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. and from the Trump administration. So mm-hmm. even though these people pretend to be at each other's throats, they are all working together to expand their ability to watch us, to monitor us and control us every way possible and with our own money. Yeah, yeah. So what do I do? What do, what do you and I do in California to, to <laughs> you know, get them to say no to that money or to, to just, uh, it seems to me, like like you said before, it's more a matter of just, as an individual refusing to participate. 
Yeah, and maybe, for example, like uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org. I know yeah. they have a whole guide called Surveillance Self-Defense. I don't know nice. if they've updated it for uh, for the uh, contact tracing situation, but I think that's a really good starting point, especially if we're thinking about stopping the surveillance state, stopping any of these things is really a long game. So what do I do from now to then? What are the steps that I can take, as Harry Brown would say in his old book, rest in peace, Harry, yeah. uh, how to find freedom in an unfree world? How do we find a little bit of freedom, a little glimmer of hope, even though the results may not happen in our lifetime? Uh, Maybe the first step is some surveillance self-defense, understanding the different tools that we can do to make it far more difficult for them to monitor us. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a great idea. I'll I'll put those on, I'll put them on the, um, on the page, I'll put a link to there. To yeah, surveillance site. self-defense is where it is the name of the, okay. the whole guide at, uh, at EFF.org. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Any other resources you want to mention? Um, well, if any- we're talking about this stuff and the approach that we're using to defeat federal programs and people want to try to figure out how to deal with the states or whatever, or maybe you're just like, well, how do I opt out? How does this all play out? I mean, right. we're, we're, this is a short conversation. <laughs> 10thamendmentcenter.com slash report. We do an 80 to 100 page annual report every year. We're a little bit behind. We're going to have an updated version in the next few weeks, but the first half is the same every year. It talks about the history, the legality, the strategy, and how to do stuff. The second half gives a report, an update year to year of how this is playing out on various issues in states around the country on things like, of course, cannabis, asset forfeiture, mass surveillance. We're talking NSA. We're also talking low local surveillance like license plate readers, cell site simulators, drone surveillance, facial recognition, uh, the right to keep and bear arms, health care, food freedom, all kinds of stuff on how this is actually happening. And again, that's awesome. 10thamendmentcenter.com slash report. And it's an easy free download for people to read. They don't okay. even have to leave their email address. It's not like a sign up for our newsletter <laughs> scam. You know, like, no, no, it's just literally just get the information, learn about it and share it. Nice. Nice. Okay. Uh, we're going to wrap up. Any parting thoughts? I think that's it. I'm really grateful. This has been really fun. We're going to have to do it again. Yes, we will have to do it again. Thank you so much. Um, and I'll get this posted and put your links up and let you know when it's up. You rule. Thank you so much. Thank you.